contents of the lab report are meant for educational purposes only and are not meant to be misconstrued as medical diagnosis or treatment advice. Today on the lab report, we're going to do it again. We're going to talk methylation. Wait, there's more to say about methylation? There's always more to say about methylation. All right, let's go. The world of medicine can be challenging. Clinicians and patients are always looking for more options, more effective treatments, and in the end, more answers. Functional and integrative medicine focuses on addressing root causes of disease. Here at Genova Diagnostics, we've watched this field evolve and grow for over 35 years. We've not only adapted, we've led. Join us as we talk about functional medicine, laboratory testing, and optimizing health. Welcome to the Lab Report. Wow. That, mm. Your voice was like Cookie Monster there for a bit. Don't tempt me. <laughs> I will go there. I will do a Cookie Monster. Okay. Hello. Hi, Michael Chapman. Hi, Patty Devers. How are you today, Michael Chapman? I'm terrific. How are you? I'm awesome. Welcome to the Lab Report. Hi, everybody. Welcome to this podcast brought to you by Genova Diagnostics, where we talk about functional medicine, specialty lab testing, integrative therapeutics, and we talk about methylation. More methylation. Well, if you're new to this podcast, welcome. Yeah. And if you've been here Hi. before, thank you for returning. Hey, yeah, absolutely. Thank you for your continued support. That's right. And if you'd like to even support us more, you can go to iTunes, Spotify, and subscribe, download, rate, and review, and leave us some feedback there. Oh, that would be tangible help. We would appreciate that. Oh. So, here we are. I thought you were going to do Cookie Monster. No, I'm not going to do that. Well, last episode... You went on and on and on about methylation and transsulfuration. And in Make my head, it seem I thought, like a bad thing. There was just so much information there. I'm afraid people's brains will explode. Well, that's why we're going to keep hitting the subject, because if they haven't exploded yet, is that, is that your goal? Get your explode brain on. Good to have a goal. Well, I think the point we're trying to make is that it's so involved. We tried very hard to make it pretty concise and basic in the first episode. So we want to build on that and give you all the little nuances that you even know yeah, we're going to take it a step further. We're going to dig wow. a little bit deeper and uh, maybe answer some of those things that you've had questions about mm -hmm. with respect to methylation, or maybe answer some questions or answer some answers that you've not even thought of, but we beat you to the punch. So maybe, just maybe, if you hadn't heard that episode, it might be helpful to go back and review it. you got to hit the part one before you hit the part two. Yeah, and even if you've already heard the part one, it doesn't hurt to listen to the part one again. Yeah, absolutely. Take two, part one. <laughs> and now, part two. Wow. Take one. I'm confused. <laughs> so we review, just to review what happened. Yeah. We talked a little bit about what happens. Methionine from your diet becomes SAM. Correct. SAM becomes, it. it's the main methyl donor in the body. It's mm -hmm. probably the most important molecule with respect to methylation that you can think of. SAM, mm. SAM being that, that big methyl donor uh, used for all the methylation reactions. And then when it gives up a methyl group to complete methylation, it becomes SAW. Mm -hmm. And then saw turns into homocysteine. Right. And then we talked about how there's two pathways that homocysteine can take to be remethylated back up to complete the cycle up to methionine. And Michael talked about how it goes through the gauntlet of the folate cycle. And that, that there's also a backup pathway using choline and betaine. Two pathways to complete this transformation of homocysteine back into methionine, thus keeping the cycle... It's a big circle, mm -hmm. keeping it going round and round and round and round and round. And that's important. Mm -hmm. uh, it's the feed forward system. So we need to continually replenish the SAM, the main methyl donor. And we do that through what we're getting in our diet. That's, that's kind of how this whole thing works, right? We take the stuff mm -hmm. from our diet, we 
becomes part of these biochemical processes, and that's uh, that helps all these reactions that are taking place in the body. And we talked a little bit about how it's not only amino acids like methionine or things like choline, but it's also zinc, right? And some zinc B vitamins. Is so important for you methylation. Love zinc. I just think that when it's the cofactor for both a main and a backup pathway, Ooh. that's going to make it pretty darn important to ensure that there's adequate function of the methylation cycle here. Well, we also briefly touched on the fact that homocysteine can also go down into the transsulfuration cycle yes. to create glutathione. Yes. And so it's kind of the basics, right? We talked about that big circle, mm-hmm. with the two different pathways, and then we talked about transsulfuration. So you're saying we're going to go even deeper here, Michael. Where would you like to start? I would like to start with choline because hmm. I'm a big fan. It's, that's in the backup pathway, right? It's in the backup pathway. It mm-hmm. is converted into betaine. Trimethylglycine. Right, to use for remethylating homocysteine back up to methionine. Okay, so why do you want to start there? What's, what's digging deeper there? Well, choline, we mentioned last time that it's also used in other processes, mm-hmm. right? So choline isn't just used to make betaine. It's used for making acetylcholine, phosphatidylcholine, phospholipid, cell membrane repair, things like that. So you don't want to be sacrificing your choline stores to serve singularly as a methyl donor. Got it. And so that's that's one thing that's really important. And so... You know, if you're doing that, you want to make sure that you have a high choline intake in your diet. um, And that's where you can run into problems if people aren't getting enough choline in their diet. Right. And when we talked about that backup pathway, we talked about how choline from your diet gets oxidized to become betaine. Uh And the relationship between choline and betaine is quite interesting as it relates to literature. So is that what you're talking about, this deeper layer? Yeah, I think that's another interesting facet to this because there's been studies that look at the plasma level of choline, the plasma level of betaine, and the relationship between the two, or the the ratio of betaine to choline. And what they find is that it seems like this betaine-choline ratio is almost like an independent risk factor for for facet factors around metabolic syndrome and cardiovascular disease risk. And by hmm. that, I mean with a lower betaine-choline ratio, you tend to see associations with lower HDL, higher LDL, higher triglycerides and cholesterol, um, higher waist-to-hip circumference or waist-to-hip ratios. Um, and so there's a lot of independent factors here that are related to this what seems like shift between plasma levels of betaine and choline, which is just, it's interesting. Yeah, and that's not even a methylation reaction. That's just, it it takes place in that backup pathway of the methylation cycle. So this is its own independent reaction because we know it's an oxidation reaction. Right. So why? That's a good question. And I feel like I have some ideas. I have some logical speculations. Right, exactly. Uh Right, Uh And I mean, I don't think the mechanism of action here has been fully proven out. Okay. But, you know, every once in a while when you've got some evidence and you know a little bit about the biochemistry, you can maybe do some logical speculation or at least you could create a segment called logical speculation. This was all just a big ruse to get another little jingle in here. That's right. Okay. Sometimes literature is inconclusive. That's right. No one really seems to know the answers. Uh But we're lucky because we have someone who always has an answer, and that's Michael Chapman. What? He's going to offer us his logical speculation. I am? Yeah. Now, that's how you set up a new segment, sir. 
Excellent tea. No Becky. jingle. No jingle. Well, I will say that I object to how you kind of framed that. I mean, no. it does kind of make me sound no. like a know-it-all. I'm, no, I'm merely saying you think outside of the box. You have a new way of thinking I, that's fresh and new. I love it. I feel like you're being sardonic. No. I if, feel like you're nope. making fun of me. Listen, listen. If there, if, if the literature hasn't figured out the whole relationship between choline and betaine, I'm sure you have the answer. Well, it just so happens. Go I've ahead. got a thought. Mm-hmm. I've got a thought. So what I'm thinking here is that choline, for the most part, should be intracellular. Okay. Right, it's being used as for cell membrane repair, as oxidation, free fatty acid, and so it shouldn't be shuttled through the plasma to the liver to perform these other reactions. Um, and so, if it is, if what you're finding is that you're having higher levels of plasma choline, it's not being used for these other reactions. It's not being held in the mitochondria. It's not being used for phospholipids synthesis, cell membrane repair what's probably happening is it's turning into uh, other substrates. It's being used for, uh, for one thing, it can turn into lipoprotein synthesis. And what they've shown is that higher levels of plasma choline are associated with higher LDL production, higher lipoprotein synthesis. So it's probably that plasma levels mean that it's going to the liver, it's forming more lipoproteins, which is a problem. What are you on about? And moving on. So you just took us from choline to betaine. Yeah. We know betaine is trimethylglycine, three methyl groups. Yeah. To donate to... Yeah, keep this in mind. Keep this in mind, trimethylglycine. Yeah, so there's three methyl groups to donate to remethylate homocysteine back up to methionine. But then another layer of this methylation panel that we didn't touch on last time was that once betaine donates its methyl group trimethylglycine donates a methyl group, it becomes dimethylglycine, or right. DMG. Yeah, because 3 minus 1 equals 2. Look at you right? doing math and stuff. Trimethylglycine turns yep. into dimethylglycine because it gives up a methyl group to take homocysteine to methionine. Right. It's a little bit of a swaparuski. And DMG is an interesting biomarker, this dimethylglycine. Yeah. Because it, you know sometimes it's used when it's high, to point out the fact that this backup pathway is being favored. Yeah. Right? So yeah. Think about a, that. It's an independent marker of, of the activity of the backup pathway. Right. So sometimes clinically when we evaluate on the methylation panel and you see a high DMG, I might be saying, hey, you know, are you expecting that this patient is using their and favoring their backup pathway? This might be an indicator that their main pathway, which requires B12 and folate, may not be working all that well. Or it's just an indicator maybe they've got a high-protein diet or there's some other reason why that backup pathway is favored, maybe a SNP or something like that. But that's not even the end of the story for DMG. Oh, no. There's more. So DMG, so trimethylglycine is betaine. It gives a methyl group to homocysteine, becomes DMG. DMG, when elevated, is sometimes what you look at to see if the backup pathway is being favored. But then DMG becomes something called sarcosine. Yeah, it spontaneously breaks down into sarcosine. <laughs> That's the sound effect that happens <laughs> right. when it spontaneously breaks down. Right. But what else is interesting is that sarcosine is also connected to a different part of the cycle where you mentioned this, I think, in, in the last episode, Michael, about kind of a disposal shoot. Right. Tell us about this disposal shoot. Yeah. Did you make up disposal shoot or is that in literature? I think I made that up. Oh, tell us about Can't your musings on the these disposal days. shoot. Yeah, so... What happens is that if there's a high level of SAM, then and the body is looking to get rid of it, there you can 
break Sam down by using glycine as a reactant and create sarcosine. So essentially glycine becomes a methyl acceptor and turns into sarcosine, and that's a way to get rid of excess SAM. So it's this sort of disposal shoot, which leaves sarcosine kind of in this interesting area with respect to clinical significance because what we just said is that it's a disposal shoot, so you might expect to see sarcosine high if you have high levels of SAM, like in a maybe overmethylation situation, but you might also see it high. If the backup pathway is being used, because we said that betaine becomes DMG and then DMG becomes sarcosine. So with a high DMG showing that you're favoring the backup pathway, you might have a high sarcosine. But to Michael's point, if you have a lot of SAM, it might use the disposal shoot and also elevate sarcosine. Yeah, so I tend to think of sarcosine as really just an indicator of imbalance mm. somewhere when it's ele- when sarcosine is elevated because it can be coming from excess or maybe problems around the main pathway. So it may be excess or deficiency. Um, the scale's tipping one way or another, but it's just the scales are tipped. They're imbalanced. Yeah. And because we see sarcosine elevated somewhat, because there's a lot of different reasons sarcosine can be elevated, there's always that question of, is that bad? You know, what's sarcosine doing? And if you go back to inborn errors of metabolism where, you know, if there's an inborn error of metabolism around sarcosine, even having really high levels of sarcosine, there's not a lot of clinical correlation there. So it's not necessarily dangerous. There was originally some studies around high sarcosine, urinary sarcosine levels Mm, and something like prostate cancer, Right. right? But then I think that... That right. literature is ridiculously been more, mixed. Yeah, yeah, more null conclusions and Correct. mixed conclusions. So, Correct. not a great indicator. And on the methylation panel, we're looking at the plasma, which may not even correlate right. to the urine levels of sarcosine. Yeah, so. so keep that in mind. Okay, so we've hit another two different layers of this methylation cycle, and I think the next place we might want to go is let's look at transsulfuration a little bit deeper. You know, before we do that, actually, okay, we promised with the last episode at the end that hmm. we were going to do, we were going to bring back a segment that we haven't done in a while. That's right. And you wouldn't tell me which one you wanted to bring back. Well, I just now figured it out. Oh, no. It took me a week. <laughs> but I think we should bring back what does it do? And I think this is a, ah. a great time to do that. Great because idea. we're talking, we just mentioned something that is uh, an amino acid that we test for, but is also a supplement. So why don't we do glycine? Good one. What does it do? Hmm. And you know, Patty, this has been a a me heavy episode. So why don't what? you why don't you go ahead and take this one? Put me on the spot. Yeah, I'll, I'll sit back and maybe press some buttons. Oh my gosh. Okay. So glycine, we know is an amino acid, right? It's common. Everyone knows it's a non-essential amino acid, and it's actually one of three amino acids that make up glutathione. Oh, Patsy, that's terrific. But Oliver, what you might not know is it's also a major component of things like collagen and elastin, and much like taurine, another amino acid. It actually helps with bile acid conjugation. Oh, that's brilliant. Lipid digestion. Oh, that's brilliant. But it's also a precursor to a lot of really important metabolites like porphyrins or purines or heme and creatine. Oh, well, I couldn't agree more. (laughs) But I think what it's most known for is that it works on the brain. So some people give it to calm or to help sleep. It acts as an inhibitory neurotransmitter in the brain and also an excitatory neurotransmitter in the brain. What? Yes. What? So glycine has antioxidant, anti-inflammatory, immunomodulatory, and cytoprotective roles. So it's a very common supplement. Some people use it in psych disorders. There's some research around schizophrenia, metabolic disorders, cardiovascular disease. 
ischemia, reperfusion injuries. So there's so many uses for glycine supplementation. Oh, Patty, you're perfect. Thanks, Oliver. Well done, Patty. That was a really great job. That was like a, a verbal monograph <laughs> of glycine. Well, I did happen to write some of the support guide around the methylation panel. So it's sure. something I researched. Sure. Yeah. And, uh, y- you know, I have used glycine myself quite a bit. To do what? Um, for sleep. Yeah, does it work? It does. Cool. And I've actually used it in family members, maybe even little kids that don't sleep yeah. throughout the night yet. It's pretty safe. And uh, so I've had good success with it. And awesome. you know the other thing that you didn't mention about glycine? What's that? It tastes great. <gasps> like glycerin, right? Sugary. It tastes sugary and yeah. there's no sugar. It, you would think that it was like Ooh. a sugary beverage <laughs> when you put it in water, but it's not. It's just... Uh, so you're drugging your kids. That's what I'm hearing. I'm just saying if you are trying to use oh. it on pediatric patients, Kay. you won't have a problem with compliance, at least around taste. Duly noted. Well, that brings us back to the task at hand. We wanted to talk a little bit more about transsulfuration and kind of peel that one back a little bit. So tell us a little bit more about transsulfuration. With pleasure. Hmm. Because it's such a big word, it's fun to say, right? Transsulfuration. Some people spell it with one S, some people spell it with two S. I spell it with two. Is there a right way? I don't know. I don't know. But that being said, the goal of transsulfuration depends on what is going on in the body. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you're taking homocysteine and, and converting it into different products. You're you're sulfurating it. You're turning it adding in, sulfur. Yeah, so you're you're conjugating it into cysteine, which is a sulfur-based amino acid. So it's not just a clever name, transsulfuration. Right, and so if there's a lot of oxidative stress on board. Or if there's adequate methylation, then a lot of times what you're going to see is glutathione production because depending on where the body's needs are, these products are going to go different directions. Okay. Okay. So the first step is turning homocysteine into cystathionine, and then that turns into cysteine. And cysteine kind of acts as this branch point. It's an amino acid in and of itself, Mm -hmm. cysteine, right? And then cysteine can go into turning into uh, glutathione. Or it can go a different direction, form pyruvate, hmm. and enter the Krebs cycle as an energy source, or turn into taurine, which is used for, for different things, bile acid conjugation, and several different things. So what we think about is, where is the cysteine going? And that's going to be dictated in part by need. If there's a lot of oxidative stress on board, it's more likely to go towards glutathione. Uh, if there's more energy demand, then it might go more towards things like pyruvate or taurine. And so there's a little bit of this uh, interesting divergence in the transsulfuration pathway, um, which, which is good to know, good to be aware of. Yeah, very much so. So when we were talking about the methylation cycle, I remember we made a big deal about zinc. Yeah. Zinc as a cofactor in all of these steps because zinc was important both in remethylating homocysteine in the main pathway and the backup pathway. We yeah. talked about how important it was. Well, if I'm looking at transsulfuration, are the cofactors the same as they were in the methylation cycle? There's some that are the same and some that are different. So mm. there's a couple big steps getting homocysteine to cysteine, uh, two big steps, and both of those are strongly vitamin B6 dependent. So transsulfuration is heavily reliant on vitamin B6, first thing to be aware of. Once you get to that step of cysteine and you're trying to now go to glutathione, things change up a little bit, and you think about the, the things that are required to make 
glutathione. You start with the cysteine, and that's why some people will even supplement with N-acetylcysteine, mm-hmm. right? Because it's that precursor to glutathione. Some people will call it the rate-limiting step. Yeah. I don't know that that's necessarily... I don't think we should be thinking about it I that don't way. either. I don't um, either. Because there's plenty of research suggesting that actually... Glycine, right. which we just talked about, is a huge rate-limiting step in glutathione production as well. Mm. And that if you don't have adequate glycine, we've talked about before, the biomarker pyroglutamic acid, which is an organic acid, is going to elevate. So that can be a marker for glycine need. We talked about that in our organic acid podcast. But uh, not getting too far off topic, what we're talking about with glutathione production for cofactors, you need cysteine, glycine, and glutamic acid all available. And the other thing is what you're going to need, the cofactors, uh, magnesium and zinc, again, here is important. So those are the things that I'm thinking about from a glutathione standpoint. More zinc. Yeah, it just shows up No everywhere. wonder you love zinc so much. Yeah. But in essence, methylation, we think zinc. Transsulfuration, primarily B6, but also zinc. And magnesium, yeah. Great to know. Which brings us to another little fact. Okay. That... You know, we keep coming back to this multiomics approach. Yes. Where we're taking metabolomics or phenomics, uh-huh. adding them to uh-huh. genomics. Uh-huh. And we touched on this a bit on the last episode, saying, like, on the methylation panel here at Genova, it is a multiomic approach. Yeah. We layer biomarker on top of genetic SNP. And even in these little processes we just uncovered today, each of them also have SNPs and enzymes that may be impacting each of these little pathways. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yes. And some of them upregulate, yeah. which means speeds up the enzyme. Some of them downregulate, which means it slows the enzyme. So not only do you have to look at, you know, are the biomarkers high, are they low? We have to look at the SNP and decide if it's an upregulator or a downregulator to see if it's actually even impacting. And that might change how you treat abnormalities here. Yeah. So in case you didn't have your splode brain on yet, <laughs> there's 10 SNPs. On the methylation panel. There's CBS, MTHFR, COMT, but then there's MTR, MTRR, BHMT, GNMT. Mm. You can really get into the nitty-gritty details of the genetics that might be causing alterations in the cycle, and that's going to help you clinically to to treat a little bit more appropriately and, and from a personalized approach. Well, you know, this has been a lot of really heavy biochemistry today, Yeah, as is to be expected when we speak about methylation. I think it's time to lighten it up. Let's do a question of the day. Sounds good. Let me uh, just hit this button here. Question of the day. It's my favorite question one. I hate this one. Day. It's the best one. It is? Yeah. I think we need a new one. Oh, I can arrange that. Let's do it. Let's get a new one. Oh, oh okay. Challenge accepted. <laughs> Well, the question here is actually a very common one. So thank you to whoever emailed this at podcast at gdx.net. And it's going to go to you, Michael Chapman. Oh, okay. We hear a lot of, you know, mumblings about the the stability of salmon saw. And so the question is, what are your thoughts on the stability of salmon saw? Yeah, so that's a good question. The salmon saw have stability challenges. Uh, It's one of the reasons why we have not been running them as an assay for a long period of time. Mm -hmm. Uh, It takes a lot of effort to stabilize these molecules. And so when we developed the methylation panel, we took that into account. Obviously, you want to make sure that you're taking in stability into account. Otherwise, you're probably not building an assay that works very well. (laughs) We don't want that. And so what you do is, first and foremost, you run stability studies. 
So say, for instance, you know what the, you have a sample of the fresh analyte, then that tells you, it gives you, it calibrates essentially the machine. And then what you do is you have somebody do a blood draw immediately, and then you immediately run that sample. Then you do a blood draw and you wait an hour. Then you do a blood draw and, oh. and you wait two hours. Then you do a blood draw and you, and, and I don't know that it's exactly this, you know, one hour, two hour, but mm-hmm. this is what the lab does is they draw the time out and then they simulate and emulate what happens in the shipping process, what mm. happens in the, the all, all of it so that we can determine, yes, that that analyte is the same. It is staying the same and there's stability there. So they ship from all over the country? The other Yes. And the other thing is that we took it great lengths to ensure stability and it requires freezing. The sample requires freezing that helps to keep it stable. And within our kits, we have temperature sensors that tell us that the kit didn't reach a certain temperature, didn't thaw. Uh, if there's there's a certain time frame, a window that we're, we'll reject samples outside of that window. Um, and so, yes, we take stability very, very um, seriously. And we reject samples if they're unstable. It's very obvious when a sample has gone unstable and uh, we'll reject it. So, yeah, absolutely. It's it's a good question and it's something that Common. we took very, yeah. like, you know, that's part of the build. That's part of building the report. Awesome. Next time on The Lab Report, we're going to do case studies. Really? Yeah. Stop the music a second. I'm not even sure people really like case studies. What? I think people zone out when you bring up a case study. What are you talking about? People love case studies. See, that's a common misconception, I think. What? Well, (laughs) maybe it's not. I don't know. No, I mean, there's probably some people like yourself out there that don't Mm -hmm. like case studies, but I, I don't think you can sit there and say people capital P, well, don't like case studies. Well, why don't we ask the audience? That's a good idea. We should ask the audience what they think about case studies. If they want us to do case studies, we'll do case studies. Okay. How would they tell us? They could email us podcast at gdx.net. Let us know. You've been listening to The Lab Report. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast, rate us, and leave us a review. To learn more about Genova Diagnostics, visit our website at gdx.net. There you'll find information on specific testing, educational resources, and how to connect with our show. Call us at 1-800-522-4762 or email us at podcast at gdx.net. Within the midst of that podcast, Uh, you used words like sardonic, number uh, one. uh You used the word swaparuski. Yeah. And then splobrain. Yeah. Yeah. And I would like it to be heard that if months from now uh-huh. you start to hear explode brain if it goes <laughs> viral if you hear it everywhere you heard it here first i am the originator of explode brain hashtag explode brain <laughs> <laughs>